stick with it. Don't give up. Don't feel intimidated. Put yourself into situations that challenge you. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Messina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Welcome everyone to the Bushino Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. Today, my name is Jasmine DeLeon and I'll be your host. For this episode, we're thrilled to have Dr. Katherine Tinker on as our guest. Dr. Katherine Tinker is an award-winning scholar in the fields of international law, environmental law, human rights, and women's rights. She is an inaugural Distinguished Fellow of the Center for UN and Global Governance Studies at Seton Hall and has been a visiting associate professor at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Currently, she is teaching graduate courses in public international law and international environmental policy and law. Dr. Tinker served as the project director for the writing of a book published in 2001, Crossing the Divide, Dialogue Among Civilizations for UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. Thank you, Jasmine, for having me on this program. It's an honor to be here with you. All right. Thank you for coming on with us. So, Dr. Tinker, how would you categorize your career path and how you got to where you are today? Well, I'd say my career path was very flexible, varied, and even perhaps unconventional. I'm not sure it was a path, but it was interesting, and it was always following what I wanted to do and what I cared about and where I thought I could make a difference. And how I got to where I am today by working very, very hard. So you have had many passions studying comparative literature at Occidental College, traveling to Bangkok and France on semesters abroad, and eventually enrolling in law school. So how did you find what you wanted to do? Well, trial and error. And when I wrote a note to myself, when you'd asked me that question to begin with, I'd look back at it and I thought it said, terror, (laughs) instead (laughs) of error. So I think that's a little bit of it, too. When you're trying something completely new and completely unknown, maybe with people you've never met, you're going somewhere different than never been or never lived, it's a challenge. But that's an opportunity. And so seize it. And I was lucky that I felt able I could do that and that my family supported me in doing that. So after you graduated college, what was going through your mind at that point in terms of what plans you had? Did you have a certain plan or did you just continuously follow that flexible path? Well, I thought that I would teach. And that's when I went back and did a master's first in comparative literature. And at the time I was applying for PhD programs, uh, my professor who was my mentor at the time suggested I should also take the LSAT. He thought I'd be good in law school which was a whole new thought. (laughs) So I did that, and then one step leads to another, and you just put one foot in front of each other, and that's how it ended up. And then I could teach, but I ended up teaching law, international law. And so the circle was complete. I want to back up a little bit to when you worked for Bella Abzug, who is a feminist lawyer and your congressional representative, and you said she made a really big impact on you. So Can you elaborate on the lessons you took away from her mentorship and her leadership? Right. 
Well, she'd had a very distinguished career in Congress and in politics in this country. But when I worked with her, she was working on the global stage, creating an organization, a feminist organization, to be an NGO at the United Nations. And it's still a very influential group with members from all over the world, with collective decision-making, with all the things that the world should be, and giving voice to women's real concerns. So uh, this was called Women's Environment and Development Organization. And so I was a consultant to her when she was creating this and getting accredited and beginning to become active in UN meetings. So I was able to go with her to Copenhagen to the Mid-Decade Conference on Women when CEDAW was opened for signature, the Treaty on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. So I wrote an article about that for a law journal. And then as we went to UN meetings, we were building up to the Earth Summit and went to all the preparatory committee meetings in Geneva and in New York so that women would not be left out of this really fundamental, important conference that took the Stockholm Declaration forward 20 years later from Stockholm and then became the foundation with the principles of international environmental law of my whole scholarly field and teaching. But you had asked me about Bella personally, and I just want to give credit to her as a role model for all of us still today, because she went where women weren't allowed to go And she made herself seen and heard. And she did it not by keeping quiet, (laughs) not at all. She definitely spoke out. Um, But she did it in a way where she could stay true to what she wanted to say. Very firm, very strong principles, even radical ideas at the time on feminism and the importance of women. But she did it in a way that she could persuade her listeners and bring people along and include her audience not try to exclude anybody. And she'd talk about her family. She'd make jokes. She was a really amazing speaker. And and in the UN, where NGOs, non-governmental organizations at the time, were really silenced, if present at all, silenced. Bella pushed against that. She never got to realize her dream of speaking from the podium in the General Assembly Hall. But everywhere else she went where the diplomats were, and they would welcome and ask her for her opinion on things because they knew she'd give them a straight answer. Really an amazing role model and one we should look back to even today. What are some ways that you saw her bring women together? Like you said, that women were brought to the table and they were able to work together. So how did you see her Well, here's an early example. I mean, this is going back, way back in time. (laughs) 1980, the Mid-Decade Conference on Women, the UN had a decade of women from 75 to 85, right? And we were supposed to then bring full participation in all areas of life and politics and, and professions and work of every kind. Maybe the UN didn't achieve all of those goals, but a lot of formidable steps were taken. So here's what Bella did. Instead of just going to one more conference and being a diva or a star, which she was, okay, <laughs> and only talking to people she knew from back home, which is common. You know, people feel security that way. They stay with the group they already know. No, Bella put herself out there and she'd go up and introduce herself and talk to women from all over the world 
and ask, why are you here? What did you come here for? Tell me, I want to know. And she'd listen. This is an amazing lesson. First big lesson of leadership, listen. And then I'd meet her for early breakfast and we'd write up what we thought we were going to do that day. In a big program, there are many meetings going on simultaneously. So, and she'd kind of think through the priorities and who she was going to talk to and who the rest of us should do. Um, and then she would start nine o'clock. She got a big table and chairs reserved in the meeting area in the building. And she invited women there. Women no one had talked to among like other New York women who were at the same meeting. I'm sorry. Um, But Bella and I would sit there and she'd say, okay, now this is what I'm going to do today, but I want to know what you're going to do. Who are you going to talk to? Which meeting are you going to? And what do you want to say? And she said, don't worry about if somebody's going to recognize you or give you permission to talk. She said, what do you need to say? And then women would open up and start talking. And, you know, after a few days of this, more and more and more women were coming and speaking up and then making a network and kind of fanning out. And during the day, we'd see each other in the corridors and we'd kind of check in and say, oh, hey, how's it going? (laughs) Or, you know, do you need backup? And then, you know, maybe go with somebody to another meeting even or ask them to come with you. So that was that kind of collective work method that someone as great a leader as Bella was, was able to bring others along and help them do what they were there to do, but also open herself that her platform then just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's leadership. Wow, so it sounds like she really brought together so many different kinds of people and listened to them. That Mm -hmm. is a great lesson. So how have you seen... Since working for Bella, the experience of female leaders in politics and policymaking change over the years? Well, just the opportunities and the positions filled by women have grown vastly. As I was being trained and in law school and trying to go out in the world and work as a lawyer, I mean, these things just were not, we were making it happen for the first time and for women in any kind of numbers. And to me, it's not about just having a single woman get one job. It's really about when all of us have an opportunity that if we're willing to do the work and do the studying or whatever it is, take the exams, qualify for the licenses, whatever it is, have an equal chance to fill the jobs. And when we're there in numbers, that means the institutions change. And I do think some of that has happened. There have been some setbacks, and uh, I'd say one of one of the issues uh, still is pay equity, and we certainly never solved that one. So I hope in your lifetime that happens soon. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask you because in the Bushino Leadership Institute, students have a lesson on values. We do a values exercise. And we learned that values are meant to guide our decision-making, especially when we have to make a difficult choice. So what are some values that you have that have really driven the work and the way that you work? I'd say if I could go back to something you mentioned in my introduction, crossing the divide, dialogue among civilizations. 
with a group of eminent persons from all over the world, writers and thinkers and political leaders uh, who were brought together for conversations about values, um, that I, I just think that illustrates very well what I grew up with and what I believe, and I think I try to still practice, um, well, the values of, of truth and equity, fairness, and justice. I mean, I think if with those as underpinnings, we all make mistakes. I mean, our judgment isn't always perfect, but at least if those are the things we're trying to uphold, it's worth the fight. And that's, that's a fairly good guide star, if you will. That's really interesting because I think something that I didn't mention in the introduction that we talked about before is your experience as a prosecutor in New York. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Right. Um, it's one of the traditional paths for a young lawyer getting out of law school, um, going into court. So it's an invaluable lesson for every other career step afterwards. Uh, litigating cases, bringing a case, making your argument to the jury, making the motions before the judge. And what it does is help you later in any kind of public speaking. And it also helps you in your thinking logically and evaluating your ability to assess and analyze a piece of evidence or judge the testimony of a witness. But, you know, none of that matters if you can't communicate that clearly and warmly to a jury to understand these are real people's lives and also to have some kind of empathy and compassion all around. I guess it goes back to some fundamental notions about, in this case, what was criminal law for? You know, and what is it that society needs? That's a whole nother subject. What are some skills that you learned prosecuting in New York and from your leadership position as a supervisor in the Brooklyn office? Well, I think one thing is to just really try to be very careful in analyzing the evidence at all sides, look at it from every direction, listen to what all the different witnesses are saying, see if it hangs together. Um, I would also usually go out to the site of the alleged crime so I could try to visualize what could or couldn't have happened, right? Or where different people were standing when they say that what they saw and that kind of thing, just to try to fill in the gaps and really try to get a true picture of what might have happened at that instant when something went terribly wrong, <laughs> right? And so I think that was one thing. And then as a supervisor, I had to learn to delegate. And that's a tough one, <laughs> okay? But, you know, when when you make good choices about the people you want to work with you and I had a very supportive boss because I worked for another former U.S. Congresswoman, Elizabeth Holtzman. And when she was in the U.S. Congress, she was on the House Judiciary Committee and questioned witnesses during the Watergate trials. And she, this wasn't a trial, it was in the House, but the same people ended up in the courthouse down the street in those trials. So, you know, and she would say, and this is an important point too as a supervisor, if you don't like something. Do something about it, right? So if we were 
hamstrung by, you know, a lack of resources or, you know, we wanted to set up a better process or we needed um, resources for an investigation, uh, something like that, or an additional staff attorney brought on in our bureau. Um, Ask for it and make your case why you need it. Don't just say, oh, we can't do it. (laughs) Make it happen. All right. And she took this further because the laws are not necessarily fixed. And the laws are not always fair. And we can give you many, many examples of that still today. So do something about it to change the law. Work for law reform. And so even as the Brooklyn DA, Elizabeth Holtzman, would be up in Albany in the state capital of New York with bills to reform laws that she understood were not fair to people when they came through the criminal justice system. And so I thought that was a really good way to try to think about being in charge of a huge office and a major important role in government and one that really affects everybody in society one way or another. I think that's a perfect transition to my next question, which is, can you tell us about the Tinker Institute on (laughs) International Law Organizations and why you decided to create it? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, This came out of working with Bella, actually, when we were ready to go to the Earth Summit in Rio. And I was actually working on my dissertation for NYU Law School for the doctorate in international law. And my subject had to do with biological diversity and international law. So there were two big meetings going on. One was the final stage of negotiations for what became the Biodiversity Treaty in 92, the twin of the climate change treaty that everybody's talking about now because of the conference that starts next week in Glasgow on climate change. So as I was working on that and then preparing to go to Rio, I got accreditation for Bella's group, and then I got accreditation from the UN for my Bar Association Committee. I was on a committee on international environmental law at the Association of the Bar of the City of New York. And in both cases, only two representatives were going to be allowed into the official meetings once we got to Rio, and I wanted to be one of them for one group or the other. And I learned a hard lesson about organizations that the person in charge gets to go. And if they're going to pick a second person, it may not be the young person who's been doing a lot of the work because they may have other reasons why they have to invite maybe a major donor or someone higher up in the institution. So that's, that's kind of why I ended up starting my own organization because then I could get two more passes, one for me, and then I could bring somebody else with me and go to Rio and go to the negotiations uh, in Nairobi, actually, for the final stage of the treaty that became the Biodiversity Convention. So I think we've heard before about getting a seat at the table. It really sounds like you made your own seat at the table. And in the Tinker Institute on International Law and Organizations, what do you do? Um, And what's your objective? All right. Well, the mission of the organization and the way that it's incorporated is a dedication to um, research and education on international law and international organizations. 
And through the years, um, we were like founded in 1992 and accredited to ECOSOC as a non-governmental organization in 1996. So we've been doing this for a long time. And initially, it was because individuals, of course, can't just walk into a UN meeting or even into the building unless you buy a ticket for the tour in the pre-COVID days. But I, I wanted to participate, and I was being trained through my studies at NYU uh, to do this because my professors had worked in the legal affairs at the UN. Diplomats from the UN came to us at the law school and gave talks or were invited to a dinner and so on and so forth. So I saw the value to being not just one person, but being an organization and bringing others along too. And therefore, I could invite students of mine or other faculty members who wanted to go to one particular meeting. They could go in the name of this NGO and do their research, talk to people, um, gather information, offer information that they had from their own work and experience to the deliberations going on at the UN. So it's contributing both ways. And that's why the UN Charter in Article 71 provides for non-governmental organizations to enter into relationship with the UN through ECOSOC and contribute to the work of the UN. And that's what we do. So what have you learned as a mentor for students, specifically in the Tinker Institute? And how has that shaped the way that you view the next generation of leaders? Well, I have to tell you, I am so impressed with the energy and the vision of the young people who've come in through the Tinker Institute as interns and the skills in digital communications and facility with social media and how to get a message across in a way that's very dynamic. So that's one piece of it. That's the output, whether it's recording a podcast or uh, writing an intervention, a statement. So that's one part. The other part um, is just the cooperation and the way that young people can work together and bond, become a team. First, as interns, I often have more than one at a time. And so how they work together as a team and their ideas for outreach Usually when we're there in person, which, of course, we have not been for the last 18 months, but uh, we hope to be back in 2022, but going around um, in the meetings and just talking to people very naturally to the other young people who are there, the other NGO representatives, striking up conversations, going to NGO side meetings and events and asking questions and making comments, and then somebody else comes over because what you said was interesting. And, and this is really how knowledge advances, but it's also how diplomacy works. So it's diplomacy on the level of civil society, and it's a really important part of the diplomacy that states are engaging in. They may not always appreciate that, but <laughs> that's what it is. What made you decide to pursue working in education and working with students? Hmm. That's a good question. I suppose because I love to read and research. And once you have something, some exciting ideas you've come across, well, at least in my case, I want to talk about it. 
And, you know, friends and family get a little bored sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in an educational setting, I mean, you're with other people who've been reading the same things that you're reading, who are excited about the same kinds of ideas, who can ask questions, bring in different perspectives, and the conversations are just so exciting that can be had. So that's why I like life in a university. So... You've traveled all over the world, moving from Iowa, California, and New York, all over. So as a global citizen, how has your perspective of people been shaped by your experience around the world? Hmm. That's a very good question. Well, of course, sharing knowledge, I've been talking about that, and getting to understand others, absolutely fundamental for any future leader. That's a necessity, actually. And... I mean, now today, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it seems to me that that's how the world should be. And it surprises me if it's not, and it's not in many places, in many situations. Of course, we all know we're only learning how often it is not true. But I think by these experiences, and I credit my family, too, that did, uh, traveled a lot and brought me along car trips across the United States, even when I was very young. I never had the feeling that there was only one spot in the universe, that where you were born was where you stayed for the rest of your life, or the only people you could know were those in your immediate vicinity. I guess I always had this idea there was a larger world out there. And so that was a gift. But why does that help become a global citizen instead of reverting into some closed belief system where, okay. And what I thought about it might be, this is just an idea, that maybe it's about not being threatened by difference. Mm -hmm. Whether there's someone or something that's different from you. To me, I'm curious. I want to know more. That's interesting. And I guess... That's that spirit of being curious about someone else's life or about something that is different is really what global citizenship is about. Because then you can learn from each other and work together. How have you navigated working with people in a global thinking society with so many different perspectives? We, we learn a lot about this in the Institute through yeah. the interdisciplinary team projects that we do. So can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Right. Well, again, I back to listening. That's pretty fundamental. And I remember uh, t teaching human rights here at Seton Hall University a number of years ago. And I invited a guest scholar who was working at NYU Law School at the time, writing a major paper, who talked to the students about intersectionality. And this was many, many years ago. And the class came alive. And I said, okay. And that opened, I mean, even thinking that I was open to a variety of concepts and experiences and backgrounds and people, it's one of the things I enjoy about this campus because our classes have a certain amount of diversity. And on the graduate level, I've always been blessed in having students from all over the world. And I feel that brings another level of understanding when we're reading a text and discussing it because we can see different points of view. But isn't that what the humanities is actually about? 
I believe in liberal arts and liberal arts education and liberal arts colleges. And I think we really have to understand the importance of humanities training and thinking. And that's at the root of understanding one another better. So everybody sees history in a different way, but if we can open up and talk to one another about it, there are lots of interesting connections. What is some final advice that you have, Dr. Tinker, for undergraduate leaders? Stick with it. Don't give up. Don't feel intimidated. Put yourself into situations that challenge you. Because that's where you're going to learn and advance. And any chance you have to go to a lecture or a meeting where there's going to be a panel or a speaker, do it. Because you never know what connection that will make in your brain, or who you might talk to who's sitting next to you, or go up to the speaker afterwards and ask a question or a comment, because they want to hear what you heard while they were speaking, and they want to find out who's in the audience. So never miss an opportunity like that, because you just never know. And then once you're in a position, of course, really make sure you're doing your best. If you're doing your best, you may or may not succeed at everything, and you'll be better at some things than others. Well, don't beat yourself up about that. That's being a human being, all right? But try to look ahead to the next step as well. And I think for, especially for young women going into leadership roles, it's something that I may not have done necessarily in my career and should have, could have. I tended to go just um, on interest and uh, a lot of help from people along the way. So never forget to help others as you go up the ladder, as it were. All right. But don't just think of the immediate position you're in, because that may be short-term thinking. Talk to people. Find out where you could go after this. What is the next step? What are the other opportunities? And then... That's back to my first point about going to lectures and panel discussions and meetings and conferences. You don't know what's possible. It's a very big world out there. So open your mind and listen to people who are doing things you never knew were even possible. Well, that is all the time that we have. Thank you, Dr. Tinker, so much for coming on the podcast. And to our listeners out there, we'll see you next week. On behalf of everyone at the Pasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU, for allowing us to use their facilities, and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership, on Instagram at Pasita Leaders, and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.